Welcome to another episode with the Market Dominance Guys, a program about the innovators, idealists, and the entrepreneurs who thrive and die in the high-stakes world of building a startup company. We explore in the cookbooks, guidebooks, and magic beans needed to grow your business. guys, Chris Beal and Corey Frank interview Gregory Smith, Vice President of Strategic Accounts and Partnerships at Sparks IQ. Corey introduces Greg as an M&A whisperer, which Greg lives up to as he reveals insights gleaned from his work with mergers and acquisitions. How can he tell if a company is going to survive and thrive? Greg says that he begins with two questions. Does your company's product or service fill a particular niche? And does your company... And does your product or service solve a specific problem for customers? Greg then warns our podcast listeners against being a one product or service and done business. As he explains it, you can occupy a great niche and have a fabulous customer solution, but you need to continue to develop and augment what you're offering. He illustrates his point with an example from Starbucks' early days in business and then goes on to tell a cautionary tale of a company that pioneered bacon-infused vodka. The guys switch over to talking about customer service and how your company's treatment of customers defines your and how your company's treatment of customers defines your business more than any product or service ever could. You won't want to miss this eye opener and other examples of what can cause businesses to succeed or fail on today's Market Dominance Guys episode. One and done is the loneliest number. Chris, good afternoon. Corey, is that you? Once again, once again, we have a special edition today, right? This is the, is this the drinking edition of the Market Dominance Guys? I think it is, right? So, uh, Chris, what do you got there in your, your glass? Uh, this, this would be the McKellen 12. It's nice and simple. I'm oh, just okay. having, I'm having it with my favorite accoutrement, air. <laughs> air, and probably a nice uh, soft brie, right? Okay. As for me, I am drinking a uh, Jocko uh, White uh, pomegranate tea. And if you notice, we have a special guest in the other panel here of our discussion. We have Greg Smith. Greg, uh, we're honored to have Greg today. Greg is an M&A whisperer, a true dirt floor operator. And I think, you know, many times, Chris, what we talk about in the market dominance, guys, is we are enamored. We are seduced by people who have taken a lot of these practices and dominated a market. And I think Greg, uh, clearly, as we uncover and unpack Greg's story, that um, you know he's done it again and again. So he has the unlock code for many entrepreneurs and for many businesses that are just existing and not growing and how to uh, kind of bust out. So uh, Greg, welcome and what's in your glass? Thanks guys, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I don't know about the unlock code, but I guess, if you rate the number of mistakes I've made in my 40-year career, they're pretty extensive. So I guess uh, mistakes uh, sometimes can equate into, uh, into lessons learned. So yes, I am drinking Don Julio 70 on the rocks. And uh, the secret there is two lime wedges and a splash of orange juice. 
just a splash. And I think Don Julio 70 is probably some of the best tequila out there. It's just nice and smooth. It's Blanco and uh, silver. So it's just, uh, just nice and smooth. Okay. Cheers, Cheers gentlemen, from the afternoon. That's right. Well, speaking of nice and Here smooth, Chris, you know, I know you have a little story about how you kind of ran into Greg and, you know, we have very stringent criteria to be a guest on market dominance guys, right? I mean, it's what, uh, it's a multi-page questionnaire and, I think there's a blood palette. I mean, there's all kinds of things, but but ultimately Greg cast all those with blind colors. And what are we going to talk about, Chris, with Greg today in the area of market dominance? Well, we usually are talking to people who are kind of out of the SaaS world or the tech sales world or whatever it happens to be. You know, Greg comes out of a different world. And I think sometimes people are skeptical about market dominance being the play, the only safe play, when you kind of are not in the world of fast-moving technology. And I think Greg can bring us a perspective on the importance of market dominance in industries that you would think are, I would almost say, beyond commodity. You know, the distribution industry might be the most beyond commodity industry around, in a way. They're, they're called middlemen for a reason. And generally, what one is trying to do with the middleman is to do what the surgeon does with the appendix, you know, cut them out, right? And so how do you make market dominance happen when people in by and large think of you as an appendix to be cut out? Why is that important and how do you do it? And I think I disagree with Greg about the unlock code itself, or I think he's being a little coy. The unlock code literally is made out of mistakes. You manufacture the unlock code out of errors. And so I'm, I'm really fascinated to hear about the big mistakes and what the learnings are, and then about the application of those learnings to situations where it wasn't obvious a market could be dominated, but in fact, that's what happened. Exactly, Greg. For you to say you've had many mistakes amongst your four plus different companies that you've you've taken to maturity and still be there drinking Don Julio versus <laughs> uh, some rail, rail, it's not rail tequila, right? With, so obviously you fell your way up, you fell upward, you tripped upward. So to Chris's point, let's uh, let's talk about some of those. The reason I'm still here is because I'm drinking Don Julio Saturday. Duly <laughs> <laughs> noted, duly noted. I look pretty good for 85, don't I? <laughs> that's, that's right. Damn frisky as we say in these parts, damn frisky. Yeah. Right? Right? So I'm a manufacturer, I'm a distributor today, Greg, and I've been in the business for 15 years, but really I've been in the business one year, 15 times. I just can't break out. You're the doctor coming in in the lab coat. What are you diagnosing me for? What are the key levers that from your purview now that you've had these challenges and you've figured it out, what likely am I doing wrong? Yeah. So that's some great questions there. And, and so as I look at, what it takes to create market dominance for most industries, right? Most companies, most industries. There's probably about seven or eight or maybe nine, I would say, key attributes, right? To achieving that. And it really, I think it kind of starts with what is your solution, right? And what is your niche? And if you can't provide a unique niche in the marketplace, or solve a problem or become a solution provider, it becomes really hard to scale your business, right? If you're 
just amongst the masses. And, and I have to say, most of my career has been in distribution, specifically really in electrical distribution. You can't get much more commoditized than that. Yes, there are services that have expanded within that industry over the years to allow for some elasticity, if you will, in the profits. But by and large, you're selling what everybody else sells, right? So it becomes very difficult to become a differentiator. Uh, and services is certainly one of, the, one of the ways to do that. So, you know, I think one of the first things, as I mentioned, is kind of what is your niche in the marketplace, right? What problem are you solving for a customer? If you can answer one or both of those, you're way more apt to succeed. And frankly, you're way more apt to grab some scalability of your business. I talked to a lot of folks, a lot of companies over the years, and I do a bit of consulting on the side. And, you know, one of the first things I ask them is, what is your USP or what is it that you're, what problem are you solving or what niche in the marketplace are you looking to kind of adhere to? And usually what I get is a lot of blank stares, right? It's, or I get a lot of wordsmithing but nothing that's really tangible that, that clients and, and, and customers can kind of latch on to. So that's important, right? You have to identify that. And it, it reminds me of that book, uh, White Ocean, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if you don't have a niche, you're swimming in red ocean and you're, you know, the, the small guys are nipping at you because they figured out the niche. The big guys are nipping at you because they've got scale and volume uh, manufacturers are not giving you the full attention that you should have because you don't have the scalability or the, or the volume, right? So you're in that blue ocean, you're just churning and you can, you can make a living. I've seen companies do that. I've seen nice little 10, 15, 20, $30 million companies that have been around for 80 years, right? That haven't really grown and they fill a niche and they, they're able to survive. And it's what I would call a, you know, generational business or, or kind of family business, right? It, it generates enough profits for the family and that's all they're looking to do. And that's okay. But if companies are looking to grow, they have to kind of go beyond that. And so it also reminds me of a story. And I don't know if you guys remember, I actually bought it once and thought it was disgusting, but this entire company, it was a vodka company, probably uh, maybe 10 years ago, eight, nine years ago, created an entire model, business model, around handcrafted bacon-infused vodka. Do you guys remember that? That oh, sounds okay. good, though. I'm going to get. Some, I'm going to go out for some right now. I don't I'll think be, they're still around. Yeah, well, <sighs> they might be, but I don't think. Um, and, and trust me, I love bacon. I love everything bacon. Bacon-infused vodka didn't taste all that good. But anyway, they built an entire model around. So the concept was good. Right. They wanted to swim in a space where no one was. Now, what they ended up doing, which I think is unique, is they started the flavor vodka launch, if you will. Right. This whole phenomenon. Now, if you go to, to the liquor store, you can have every flavor of vodka you want. Where they dropped the ball was concept was good. The niche was good. However, they didn't expand on it. They did uh, bacon vodka. It kind of failed. And instead of taking it and expanding on it, they just went away. So again, it's realizing what is that niche, solve a problem, 
And then if you can do that, expand on it. But if it doesn't quite work, tweak it and keep going, right? And as I think about another one, it's you got to make sure that you continue to develop your product or your service. You can't just be a one and done. You can't have, and I've seen this before, and I'm sure you guys have seen this, where you've got a company that, you know, beginning up, they hit a million dollars, they're high five and that's great. They've hit that first milestone. Then they hit five, then they hit 10, they continue to high five. But as you look at that trajectory, they start to level off or they have level off for five to 10 years, right? So they, don't, they can't get beyond that. And there's different evolutions within companies that we could certainly talk about, right? And, and what you need to do at each level in terms of shoring up the foundation, right? With people and services and products and all that stuff. But you shore up that foundation that allows you then to grow to the next level, shore up that foundation, grow to the next level, so on and so forth. So, so just because you have a good idea or one service in the beginning, doesn't mean that it possesses that, um, that elasticity, if you will, or scalability to continue to survive, number one, but then continue to grow to get to some sort of market dominance, right? So this is especially true in the wholesale distribution business because it is such a competitive business to be in. So I'm trying to think of an example for this one would be, um, well, if you think about Starbucks, right? In terms of how they evolved, Starbucks started out selling coffee, pretty much it. There are lots of different flavors and this and that and cappuccinos and all that stuff. But they quickly capped out. If you look at their um, uh, public uh, statements, they quickly capped out on revenue. I mean, they hit this, they, they went like this, admittedly, right? And then they capped out. And shareholders, and I don't care if the shareholder is you, you guys, right? Me. Joe around the block or stockholders, right? Either case, the shareholders are like, yeah, it doesn't work for us. You know, you're trading at a 20X multiple and the reason you were doing We'll be back in a moment after a quick break. Connect and Sell, welcome to the end of dialing as you know it. Give your fingers a rest with Connect and Sell's patented technology. You'll load your best sales folks up with eight to 10 times more live qualified conversations every single day. And when we say qualified, we're talking about really qualified, like knowing how many tears were shed while watching Titanic kind of qualified. And we're back with Corey and Chris. Now, coming from a distribution business of a 5% EBIT, that's pretty nice. So Starbucks also, you can look at their, their statements. They also obviously made a lot of money on coffee. But so it did two things. It allowed them to continue to grow as well as increase profitability. So then I think the third one, which is really interesting, that could be good or bad, by the way, is what are the external forces that, you know, forces that you don't necessarily, you don't have control over, but that you can adapt to or change with, right? So external forces, I think is a big one. So, and there's a variety of them, right? And, you know, there's social culture, economics, demographics, science, technology, you guys mentioned technology, right? Legal, political, God forbid, right? All these things. So all of these affect your business and market trends and how people buy, 
right? Mm-hmm. Look at the revolution of the e-com- of e-commerce in all industries to say nothing about the industrial B2B industry, right? So that was struggling to get a, a e-commerce adoption by its customers. And over the previous five years, on averages about one to two percent of top line sales, that is a 20x, and that took five years. And in one year, it's a 20x increase, right? So this pandemic changed, it was an external force and changed the marketplace for business. And so I've said this in a couple of postings. I think industrial B2B business is in the midst of a black swan profit event. And here's what I mean by that. So you look at the convergence today, right? Of we're nearing the end of the pandemic. Again, quote, hopefully, right? If there's not a variant that comes out that doesn't work with the vaccine or is vaccine resistant, then obviously that's a problem. And you know, there's some caveats here, but let's assume that we're nearing the end of this. By June, I don't know, 200 million out of 330 million people in the U.S., 200 million will be vaccinated. There's probably another 75 or 80 million that have already had it and didn't even know it, right? So we're going to get to that kind of herd immunity phase and, and businesses are already starting to pick up, right? So we're nearing the end of the pandemic. The economy is picking up. Look at the numbers yesterday on unemployment claims, Right. They're at pre-pandemic levels and commodity prices are on the increase. Now, again, that could be considered good and bad. It depends on where it goes and how and how much longer it goes. But currently today, if you look uh, within distribution, most distributors are seeing price increases weekly. And in some cases, manufacturers now, here we are April, mid-April, manufacturers have... Um, have given distributors, if not one price increase by now, which is pretty standard. Now they're on their second and in some manufacturers on their third. Combined with supply chain issues where you can't get products, right? So all of these things equate to a black swan profit event for distributors if they manage it correctly. That's the key, if they manage it correctly. And so that's just one example, I think, of a external force that can help a business. And obviously, there's external forces that hinder your business. If you were, you know, if you're all bricks and mortar and you're not doing an e-commerce site and you're selling, I don't know, paper clips, yeah, you're not going to be around much longer, right? So, uh, Greg, you go back to your example about the bacon-infused vodka. Mm. Right. And, and Chris, you and I have spoken a lot about this with market dominance is that the the number one and it's interesting to hear your examples in the manufacturing distribution industry, Greg, because, again, what Chris and I and our experience and what we've seen from market dominance on the SaaS side certainly expand to others, as we've, we've talked about. But the number one mistake that we say in market dominance is that people don't go and get the meetings or the feedback before they build the product, right? It's, uh, Chris, you talk a lot about this as the, it's literally the proverbial um, cart before the horse problem that is disastrous because the cart ultimately leads the horse off of a cliff, right? 
And then we tie into the famous chasm. And we've done a number of episodes, right, Chris, on the chasm, Jeffrey Moore's chasm, because then you go down to that chasm and there is no revenue down there. And clearly there's no bake. There's, there's loads of broken bacon infused vodka bottles. That's about it. That's down there, but there's, there's no revenue. So, so Chris, what do you, what do you say to just listening to, to Greg here is that those parallels about they didn't test the market, they built the product and didn't get any feedback loops. They thought it was a good idea in their own minds, but that was about where it stopped. Well, I mean, it's the most common problem in solving problems, right? Is finding out whether there's a problem and then finding out whether you can solve it and then finding out whether you can restrict those that you decide to solve it for in a way that allows them to identify with each other and say, oh, if it worked for Corey, it'll work for me. That is the, you know, that's the trifecta of business. People talk about product market fit like it comes magically out of a bacon infused vodka bottle, right? Like, oh, well, now that we have product market fit, it's like, what in the world does that even mean? It's not a some mystery. You go talk to folks and you say, thinking about doing this, and you listen carefully to what they have to say, and and make sure that you don't tweak the message on every one. It's called thrash. Fish thrash nicely on the decks of boats after they've been brought up. You don't want to be that fish. It's not a path to dominance. So you have to you have to actually take your product as words to the market, and then to a hypothetical market. And then let that experience tell you first, is this hypothetical market even a market? That is, would they talk to each other? Think about that question that's never asked, which is, hey, I just talked to, uh, to Mary. And, you know, if Mary were to embrace what we're doing, would that actually make it easier for you to take a look at it? That's a good question to ask. That's the ultimate question of referenceability. That is... You don't want to solve a problem that if you solved it, you'd realize you'd done nothing of value. So why go into what you think is a market, which is defined as an interreferenceable set of folks? That is, if one buys, it makes it instantly cheaper and lower risk for everybody else to buy instantly because of that first reference, right? That's what it means to cross the chasm. You get that reference and then that use that one to get another and another and another. But your market has to be interreferencing. But that's a hypothesis. So until you get your hypothesis validated, and the cheapest way to validate it is through talk. That's why bars are actually pretty good. That's why if you want to, if you want to do this really well, find truth serum of some sort. Now we talk about this all the time that the lie serum, the anti-truth serum, is the cold call. You will not tell me the truth in the cold call except about one thing, and you won't even tell me the truth about it except in your actions. Your strong desire to get off the call with your self-image intact. When I cold call you, I know what the truth is. So why don't we just get that one done with and get to a meeting? Because the first truth serum is the voluntary nature of coming to a meeting with somebody. I had a meeting today with the CFO of a company in the plywood industry. Now, you might be asking, what the heck is Chris Beal doing meeting with the CFO of a big company in the plywood industry? And the answer is, I wanted to find out whether a solution, which is our flight school packaged and thought of in a certain way, would be interesting to a CFO of a big company. Because I had advice from somebody that said, you should go get that information as a potential market, right? The entry point into the market. So I, I talked to, you know, said, 
CFO. It was an eight minute conversation, eight minutes and 49 seconds. In fact, super conversation. And he said the following, we have more demand than we can satisfy and probably will for the next 18 months. So while I see that your product might have been interesting to me at one time and might be interesting in the future, we're not in that situation, which lets me immediately do a little product market fit work, which is to say, ah, I'm going to take that information and make a list of a subset of the companies I want to talk to who experts say are in trouble with demand because of the pandemic. Great. So I didn't find out it's not good to talk to CFOs. And by the way, the conversation cost me literally eight minutes and 49 seconds. That was the total cost. That was it. No dollars, no nothing. My time's worth nothing, as everybody in the earth knows, you know. CEO's time is the most fungible commodity in the world. And the beauty is that the numerator is zero. You multiply it out and you get the same number all the time. It's worth zero. Abs- CEOs like to say they're worth a lot, but you know, their time actually at the margin is always cost zero. It's probably worth zero. So it's a good example right there. Um, plywood, right? Would you have guessed, you might have, that a plywood company right now would be facing a year to two of capacity shortage. I didn't know that. I learned it. So that brings me to the fourth point, which is go-to-market is more about learning than it is about selling, but the only way we can learn is to sell. And this is the conundrum that faces everybody in go-to-market is, well, I have to have something to sell. you got a problem. You need to learn. And the only way to learn is to sell because until you're in that meeting, that scheduled meeting where they came to you, because that CFO told me the truth. Right On a cold call, here's what he told Cheryl. He told Cheryl Turner this. Uh, sure. Because she said, I'll send you a meeting invite and we'll reschedule. He came to the meeting. He said, I have no idea what this meeting's about. You know what I said, Corey? Fantastic. Right? Because we're going to learn together. So I think people tend to skip the learning step because most of the risk of failure hides inside of learning. And we're not confident in our ability to learn deliberately. And so we skip that step. And we would rather plunge into the chasm and be licking up the dry vodka, hoping that the bacon flavor is bacon, dealing with the glass cuts on our tongues, and eventually becoming bones like those behind Greg there. And uh, we do that happily because learning as a deliberate process is so frightening that most entrepreneurs will turn down the opportunity to learn in favor of their urge to act. By the way, if I could just add two things to that. So the first one is that you're absolutely correct, right? This communication to really understand the market that you want to create a product for a solution for, right? The challenge is some of that work actually does get done However, it gets done by the people who are trying to create the niche or identify the niche or solve the problem. We all know we have biases on our belief systems, right? Mm-hmm. So my philosophy has always been hire other people to do that investigative work, right? That sales work that you call it, to ask the questions, to help identify and or support your belief. Right, but hire others to do it that don't have a stake in the game. And by doing that, you get a lot more information because again, talking with, with companies, 
starting talking with startups and helping startups get from point A to point B. To your point, you guys, that's one of the first questions I ask is, have you done some market studies, research, show me what you've done, blah, blah, blah. And 50% of them say yes, and here's the data, and we made these calls, we did this, and we did that, and half of them were leading questions, right? So, And none of them are really done, I think, correctly, because now they're in this box where they've spent a million dollars, they've generated 20000 in revenue, and they're wondering why this thing is stalling out. Right. And so they didn't really get an understanding of the uh, of the marketplace and what their product or service was going to solve or the niche that they were going to be in, that there really wasn't a need for it. So completely agree with you. Then I would take it to the next level, which is communicating with your customer on an ongoing basis. Right. Creating those conversations with your customers, not just in the beginning, but throughout really your company life cycle. So I used to do these things called customer councils and they were kind of unique and you had to be a member uh, of the customer council in order to come. We did them once a year. It was full blown dinner, steaks, nice restaurant, all they got hats, t-shirts, jackets. They got some really nice uh, swag stuff for attending. And the deal was, is that I was there uh, as a leader, but their immediate, uh, their sales team couldn't be there. Their regionals couldn't be there. Branch managers couldn't be there. Nobody that they deal with on a day-to-day basis couldn't be there. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I wanted that kind of open and honesty. And so the deal was there was a um, eight page questionnaire, which is, you know, took them 10 minutes to fill out. We had a 45 minute conversation you know, open conversation with everybody in the room about what's working, what isn't working. If you were the CEO, right, of this company, what was the, what would be the first thing you would do? How can we get better? What do you, what's problems you need us to solve? And we got so much valuable information out of those, out of, out of those customer councils. And, but I just use that as one example. There's a lot of different ways you can do that, but you got to con- constantly you know, check the pulse of the customer and get that honest feedback to make sure that you continue. It may have worked in the beginning, five years later, external forces change, customers change, customers' needs change, all those things change. So you got to kind of keep, you got to keep doing those gut checks uh, to be able to do that. And, uh, you know, there's a guy that I, that I really like that I follow a fair amount. And this guy, Simon Sinek, you guys know Simon? Yep. Oh, yeah. yeah. Good guy, right? One of the first things I fell in love with is getting to why, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's a USP, why, whatever it happens to be. But I found that extremely valuable. And I think it's true. And I think as companies are able to identify the why and then get employees to understand the why and buy into it, and then equally as important, getting the customer to understand the why, right? Why did the customer buy from you? Customers have options to buy the same product from a hundred different people. Actually now thousands of different people, right? Why did they buy from you? And that's what you really have to understand. If you can understand that, and if you can get customers to buy into that, then you start talking about exponential growth opportunity. Mm-hmm. Right? Because it just starts, it's compounding, right? And it just starts uh, starts building. So. 
you know, that product market fit, Greg and Chris, that you guys are talking about, right? That's like the this why, right? Get to the Semix, Senex. Why does somebody want my product? I mean, the number one reason that startup companies fail or the one is, is they run out of money rather, is they end up building a product that they think the market wants and the market doesn't want, right? And again, we call this product market fit and everybody talks about it endlessly as Chris is saying, and they put the carpet for the horse. But what, what do you guys say to that from a messaging perspective, right? It seems like the message is the product and the why about, you know, what problem does this solve, right, is the product. And getting to that discovery process, that flywheel of feedback seems to be the key and to your market so you can kind of have a relatively fail-safe way, but it's a process, right? Is that what you're finding with a lot of your companies that maybe they're stumbling into this and they don't know that this is a concerted process, this flywheel attempt, or they kind of forced gumping themselves into product market fit, so to speak? Yeah, kind of both, right? So, but I don't think it's ever about product. I really don't. Unless you're doing something specific like the bacon vodka, right? Unless you're doing something really specific to the marketplace, it's never, you think about Apple, right? People pay, what, 10 times more for an Apple phone than they do any other phone? Why, right? Does its features and benefits are the same when you buy a Google phone, an Apple phone, or um, I don't know, I don't even know who's out there because I have an Apple. But people pay a lot of money because of the Apple product, and so why, right? Well, because it's cool, it's this, it's that, young people did it, blah, 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 blah. All that stuff that, that generates that demand. But people didn't buy it because it was the best phone in the marketplace. They bought it because of Apple. And so what you sell is never your product. It's always you and your services and your people and the solution and the niche and all those things. Products are secondary. And I think if companies think about that differently, then your go-to-market strategy is different, right? Your talent acquisition is different. Think about all the folks that have been out of work in the last year, uh, all your bartenders and waiters and waitresses. And I feel bad for those folks, certainly restaurant owners, all that stuff. Think about how those people work every day to solve customer problems. Mm -hmm. If I was a customer service company, hiring people in customer service, I would have made the biggest bang and the biggest push to go out and find the best waiters and waitresses and bartenders I could find. Because they're the people that get it. They understand it, they live it every single day. Right. So your talent acquisition is different. All these things are different than trying to sell features and benefits. Features and benefits selling really has never worked and certainly doesn't work today. In my opinion, I don't know, Chris, do you feel differently? Oh, I agree 100 percent. I've got a good example on that, uh, that customer service solving problems thing. So we were out, um, my fiance Helen and I were out at what's called The Grill here in Quail Creek two nights ago. And it was a pretty lazy move. It was like uh, end of a, a long day. Uh, I didn't want to cook. I normally cook. She didn't want to cook. And so we went out and we sat down in the wind and we ordered our food. 
And the, the waitress seemed really good. She was very attentive. She was like quick. She didn't interrupt the conversation. My least favorite thing for a wait staff to do is to come over and start talking in the middle of a conversation, which with me is all the time. So, you know, it was, it was wonderful. Then suddenly it went weird. And we're looking at each other going, where's, where's the silverware? We have nothing to eat with. We have food and nothing to eat with. Where's my margarita? It hasn't showed up. I don't think it takes them 10 minutes to make a margarita and bring it over. You know, I know I asked for the good tequila, but I, I bet they, that's just like you open the bottle and you do the thing. And so, you know, was that a bad waitress or a good waitress? And this is where I think talent management really is interesting. Getting to the underlying truth about somebody in service is challenging and gold. So I determined that that waitress who disappeared and left us high and dry for 10 minutes was fantastic. And here's how. When she came back and she had put somebody else in charge and that person had kind of dropped the ball. When she came back, she said, I'm so sorry. There was a snake right over there. (laughs) And I caught it. And I decided, you know, to take it out in the desert and let it go. And it took me a little while to get over there and back. Now, here's where she kind of screwed up as a customer service person. She said with emotion, you want to see it? And she reached into her apron pocket. Not good. Don't ever say, do you want to see a snake and reach into your pocket? Especially not with my fiance at the table, because she is not exactly pro snake, I would say. So I said, yeah, show it to me. And I knew it was a video. So she showed me the video of the little snake, little rat snake crawling all over her hands. And But do I want that person on my team is, is the point to Greg's point. And the answer is yes, because that's somebody who takes the situation and situational awareness and realizes I may leave this couple here for a bit, but that snake crawling around in, in the feet of the table at 10 over here that's a disaster for our business. And she made the decision and took an action that had no immediate pat on the back from anybody and did it for the, for the true good of the situation. And these people are everywhere if you go find them. And I agree, customer service is the most amazing of the commodities. I'm wearing my favorite shirt, right? You've seen this before, Corey. This yep. is from the AAISP executive retreat. And I wear this shirt because rather proudly, and I'm not proud of that many things, our company has won the American Association of Inside Sales Professionals Service Provider of the Year for seven years in a row. And we never intend to lose it. And it's the most important thing about our company. And when we hire somebody, that's what we're looking for. But the best part is we get... I get four or five times a week, some CEO or, or VP of sales will call me up and say, I just have got to tell you, your people are different. Your people are different. They're not only experts, but I feel like they're more on our team than we are on our team. They're more insistent on our success than we knew we should be. And that's, you know, that's where I think you, could, you get the big differentiators. It, it isn't product. And by the way, we have a very unique product. I mean, very unique as an oxymoron or an idiot redundancy or some stupid grammatical thing like that. But I'll repeat it anyway. We have a very unique product, one of of a kind, the only one in the world. But that's not what's interesting. What's interesting is that our people, by and large, will be on your team more than your own teams on your team. Today's show is also brought to you by UncommonPro.com. 
selling a big idea to a skeptical customer or investor is one of the hardest jobs in business. So when it's really time to go big, you need an uncommon methodology to convince others that your ideas will truly change their world. Through a modern and innovative sales and scripting tool set, we offer a guiding hand to ambitious leaders in their quest to reach market dominance. It's time to get uncommon with UncommonPro.com. Never miss an episode. Go to any of your favorite podcast venues and search for Market Dominance Guys or go to MarketDominanceGuys.com and subscribe. Subscribe.